This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Practical Possibilities, a segment of Dragon Mind brought to you by Incendium D&D. In this segment, we'll be diving into the concrete mechanics of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, analyzing its different options, and giving recommendations for new and veteran players alike. In today's episode, Ian and I analyze the Warlock, a simple but potentially underpowered spellcaster with a distinct role-playing draw. If you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. So to get started for today's topic, which is the Warlock, Ian, I know that this is a class that you've definitely played a lot of, that you've thought about a lot of. Uh, Some of your deeper character moments as a player have emerged from this class. So I figured we could start with just what your experiences have been as a player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the way that I came across Warlock was actually when I initially started playing D&D. And I was I was captivated by the concepts of like gods. I was captivated by the idea of like, you know, making deals with otherworldly creatures or even just talking to them, interacting with them. What what really draw uh, drew my attention to D&D as a whole was that social interaction. So Warlock uh, classically kind of fits that idea uh, in the D&D setting. And so um, but. Basically, similarly to the wizard, uh, Warlock is a class that you can customize to fit your style of blaster. Uh, And when I say blaster, I mean like a magic user that deals damage, maybe has some like AOE stuff that it can do as well, but mostly about DPR damage per round. Um, And the Warlock is nice because you can really freely come up with various combinations of the one of the main features of this class, which is its invocations that can kind of create this unique flavor to your character. Uh, and, And I really enjoy those because, you know, even though every Warlock is a Warlock, not no two Warlocks are really ever the same, uh, you know, ideally speaking. However, you know, if you're an optimizer, it can kind of turn out that way anyway, because there are invocations that are stronger than others uh, that are listed here under the Warlock class. And and you get this kind of problem that you would normally see in games like Pathfinder 2, where you get so many feats and you chain these feats together and you try to create a really unique and powerful character. And the idea is that you can create a class uh of your own or not a class of your own but a character of your own that is unique from others but if you want to optimize if you want to be effective compared to everyone else uh then you you know there are certain routes you have to take in order to feat chain the best and you get that kind of same feeling for eldritch invocations as well although not quite to the same extent I figured I could go over some of these Eldritch implications to give an example of like what's strong and what's not uh, when it comes to these and how it kind of presents the illusion of choice, um, which is something we often talk about on our pod, uh, on our normal dragon mind um, segments. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that can be fun in some ways, but if you're really looking for a strong or effective character, uh, it's uh, and and still make them unique. You know, it kind of starts to whittle down your options. So basically, let's take a look at the the most common and most powerful options. In my opinion, um, you have uh, certain Eldritch invocations that revolve around the Eldritch Blast cantrip. And Eldritch Blast is like classic Warlock. Like you are like if you're playing a Warlock, you are probably going to take this cantrip no matter what, because it's just that powerful. It is it is basically the strongest damage dealing cantrip in the game. So you have ones that are like Eldritch Spear, which increases the range of the cantrip by uh, to uh, 300 feet from its normal 120 feet uh, or the Repelling Blast, 
which allows you to push creatures, any creature. It doesn't have a size limit or anything like that. It's just any creature up to 10 feet away from you in a straight line. And you can see how powerful that can be if you hit them multiple times. There's also Grasp of Hadar, which is in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which allows you to pull them towards you by 10 feet. So these are all very strong Eldritch Invocations. It makes the Warlock a very powerful class if you, you know, build it right. You know, looking at some other Eldritch Invocations that aren't as good, like uh, Beast Speech, speak with animals at will without spending a spell slot. It's okay, but like, it's a lot more situational than, you know, Agonizing Blast, which is just some nice damage. I should mention that I like the idea of being able to cast spells for free like that when you take an Invocation. It's just some of these spells aren't so great. Uh, You have Ascendant Step. You can cast Levity on yourself at will, which is not as good as Fly. Misty Visions, you can cast Silent Image at will. But uh, basically, you have a pretty strong like uh, dichotomy between good Eldritch Invocations and poor Eldritch Invocations that kind of funnel you if you have any sense of optimization or excitement for being effective in combat or roleplay. They, they just kind of funnel you in that direction. Uh, and so a lot of warlocks, kind of like wizard, start to look the same, where they all, you know, all wizards know fireball, all wizards know counterspell, all warlocks know eldritch blast. So that's what, that, that's what I find to be slightly disappointing about warlock. But I will say the disappointment is often subverted by uh, the roleplay opportunities of this class, which is, like I said, what really drew this to me. So I think that the best thing about being a warlock is that you have a patron, you have an otherworldly patron, and this is basically a an entity, not uh, not necessarily a god entity. This isn't uh, like divine or one of the 12 gods. This is like some sort of creature that is more powerful than you magically or spiritually and is able to allocate some of its power to you in in the normal canon. Uh, And so what's neat about this is not just that you're getting your power from like, like the what's considered like the cheating source, you know, like you, you cheat to get your power by making a deal. You also oftentimes get to interact with them on a personal level for your character. And, and that always excited me. Like I said, I always thought it would be neat like to talk to these creatures or these entities that have more knowledge than I do or more skill or power or magical ability than I do and learn from them. And, and that always, you know, made me very excited to play my, my character at the table because I was always waiting for that next moment when the DM would say, you know, you get a vision from your patron or, you know, you have a dream and you like are transported to their realm or even just you hear their voice in the back of your mind speaking to you. Uh, and, and I find this to be very fulfilling in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think that, it also provides a very clear way for the DM to be able to tell you about their world in a way that's not super artificial. So if you know you have an otherworldly patron that has to do with the main plot of the campaign in some way, they're also an informant. They're a source of information that can... Not only DMs tend to like it when they get to gush about the lore that they've created, it also helps you as a player have a sense of having a reason to be hooked into that lore and to be engaged and immersed in it. So a lot of times I've played in games where the players have to do a lot of work to try to get themselves to really care about some of the peripheral details going on like if it doesn't matter about the goal we have right now a lot of times those other lore details get lost but with a warlock a lot of times little details start to matter more because it matters to the character so i can definitely see how that otherworldly patron can just create a sense of belonging that some of the more culturally generic classes like say rogue or fighter that don't have the same kind of hook or like cultural baggage as Jim Davis from WebDM will call it. I can see how 
the warlock would fit naturally into what we imagined D&D story to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and speaking of storytelling, uh, the warlock, in my opinion, is one class that one of the one of the classes that really shines in terms of making meaningful and impactful decisions uh, for your character's story. So uh, I wanted to share uh, one of the stories that I have or two of the stories that I have very quickly on characters that I've played who were in fact both warlocks. My first two really you know, in-depth characters that I played for a long time. Um, so my character Eld, for example, who was a, a half-elf uh, Sorlock build that I really enjoyed, uh, he was actually killed by a psychic scream spell at high levels, which if you know anything about that spell, uh, actually, you know, causes their head to explode if they die from it, which can be really bad because then that then you can't use revivify uh, to to bring them back. They are unrevivifiable, and uh, because of this, you know, it is irreversible in normal circumstances. But because I had I had two things going for me basically. One was that I was a wild magic sorlock, so all of my spells had a wild magic effect. And right before this, I had the uh, reincarnated spell effect actually take uh, take off from one of my wild magic surges. And so I was under that effect basically for a minute that if I if I died within the next minute, I would be in reincarnated. So, you know, this was actually within that minute, which was nice. But but you know, we didn't just hand wave it and say, oh, you're reincarnated and roll up a, you know, different race. Uh, we took it as an opportunity for my character to make a meaningful decision uh, for, for his continued story. So what happened was my character had been drawn basically into his uh, patron's world. This was Oriel, the Frost Maiden's, uh, you know, domain. And she was talking to him and trying to get Eld to give up something in order to go back. Uh, that is how we, uh, that is, sorry, that is how we played the reincarnation off, that it was going to cost me something. And so that was actually one of the strongest role-playing moments I have ever had at the table, because not only did it require me making a meaningful exchange for my life, but also it made me consider why he would do it because with this patron, he was actually in love with this patron and would do pretty much anything um, to continue that bond with them, even if it wasn't reciprocated. Uh, that was how I had written out his story. And so, you know, I was required to think about his internal like monologue and consider, is this, is this what I would do? And what would I do? And ultimately he actually gave up his, literal heart, uh, his literal heart, which I felt was a very poignant kind of symbol as well, because it was literally a symbol of his, his love for his patron. And so he was reincarnated. Uh, and, and that, like I said, that was one of my biggest uh, role-playing moments uh, in my D&D career so far. And then I also had a different character uh, who was named Rowan, and she was a slightly different scenario. She wasn't like in love with her patron or anything, but she had grown close to her patron through necessary circumstances. And hers was a story where she eventually surpassed and replaced her patron when her patron's uh, power was waning. And this was a, an impactful decision for her because it basically meant that she was going to have to give up what her initial quest was which was to, to uh, be reunited with her family. And it turned out actually at the end anyway, that um, there was no way she could ever be reunited with her family. And that kind of hit really hard as well. So, you know, you can see through these examples that Warlock, I, I think you can have this kind of storytelling in any class, but I think that the Warlock especially lends itself to this kind of role play because if you're if you're playing with a skillful DM who is willing to listen to the kind of relationship you're willing to have or that you want to have with your patron, then you can create some very impactful moments uh, in, in your gameplay. Yeah, and that's also not to mention the fact that by default, Warlock is a charisma caster. 
meaning that your skill proficiencies are going to lean toward those social interaction proficiencies to begin with. So you're going to be a little more likely to maybe try to persuade or deceive or intimidate because you're naturally going to have ability scores that lean you in that direction. So I do want to keep, first of all, the invocations in mind, because I want to talk about those a little bit later, uh, as well as just the storytelling power of otherworldly patrons. I want to I want to put a pin in that. Uh, but to move on to get to some more concrete nuts and bolts details about the warlock, one of the things uh, that I want to establish is its role. And kind of like Barbarian, you mentioned this a little bit, Ian. Warlock has a pretty defined role uh, at base, which is the, the role of a ranged damage dealer. And I do know that Hexblade is one of the, it is the most powerful Warlock subclass, which starts to muddy the waters a little bit. Uh, Hexblade does make a decent melee damage dealer, but even Hexblade makes good use of Eldridge Blast as a cantrip. So even though Hexblade can be a melee damage dealer, all Warlocks can be competent ranged damage dealers. Uh, they do have some pivoting potential through their spells, but unlike the other full spellcasters, warlocks don't get as many spell slots to play with each combat. So because of that, their pivoting potential is a lot more limited, which in a way I actually think can be easier for a new player to pick up because if you're still figuring out what the different die sizes are, you're still figuring out how actions and movement work, then not having too many options can be helpful. You know that Eldritch Blast is the thing that you, you're good at. You roll the die to hit. You deal force damage, which is probably the least resisted slash immune damage type uh, in the game. So it's a, it's a very powerful damage type with a very decent hit die. It's a D10. So really, uh, I think I would recommend it for any beginner player because its gameplay is re uh, relatively straightforward and because it has, like Ian just mentioned, such role play potential. It's also decently customizable without being overwhelming. So unlike other classes, Warlocks get a lot of decision points. So all classes have subclasses. Barbarian has their primal path, like we mentioned last time. Fighters have archetypes. Wizards have schools. Warlocks have their otherworldly patron. That's their subclass. Also, warlocks get invocations, which makes them customizable, like Ian was mentioning. They also get a choice of pact boon. So they get the option to get three cantrips from any any class it could be from druid it could be from bard whatever you think is going to be helpful or you can get pact of the blade which allows you to as an action just conjure a weapon in your hand that weapon counts as magical something that a lot of other martial characters at your level aren't going to have access to or pact of the chain which i think is the most underrated one which allows you access to a familiar which can be very helpful in some surprising ways including taking the health action. So you do have uh, some decent customizability. Also, it's not as overwhelming as some of the other spellcasters. I find that players that try to start with wizard or try to start with cleric can be overwhelmed by just how many different spells they have to sift through. That being said, there are still ways to mess it up. Like Ian was saying, some invocations are more powerful than others. Breaking down the strengths of a warlock, again, uh, it actually has great range. Eldridge Blast, which again, if you're a warlock, you should be taking Eldridge Blast, has a range of 120 feet, which is more than a short bow's normal range. Uh, and it's also a great damage with a great damage type. Some of the invocations are unique and powerful. Uh, one example I can think of is Devil's Sight, which allows you to see through magical darkness normally. Uh, another one is Eldridge Sight, which allows you to at will spam the detect magic spell. So they're definitely, and then Ian already mentioned some of the Eldridge Blast augmenting 
invocation. So repelling blast, uh, agonizing blast, grasp of Hadar, lance of lethargy. Even though it feels maybe a little boring to just say every turn, I Eldritch Blast, I Eldritch Blast. By having all these ways to customize your Eldritch Blast, there is some unique utility you can get out of your bread and butter action. And then again, as a strength, just want to highlight again, a lot of players love the built-in narratives that Warlock has. Uh, The weaknesses, I would say, coming back to it, it can be very repetitive. You, if you're going to play a warlock, you're going to need to just get used to saying, I cast Eldridge Blast over and over again. Uh, the spell economy has a lot to be desired. Warlock is unique in that it doesn't have the spell casting trait. It has the packed magic trait, which means you get less spell slots always at the highest level, but you get them back on short rests. Unfortunately, the way most D&D games I've found tend to go short rests are a very rarely used feature of the game so really you're just getting less spell slots than your spell casting peers and also like barbarian i find that warlock is too front loaded there is a very famous multi-class called the sorlock where with just two levels of warlock that allows you to get eldridge blast and agonizing blast So you get each beam hits for D10 plus charisma modifier force damage. When you multi-class now into sorcerer, sorcerer can pick up quicken spell. So they can cast Eldritch Blast as their action and then cast it again as a bonus action, getting twice as many attacks as a normal warlock would get. And they get the full spell slot progression of a sorcerer. So you're getting kind of the best of both worlds. I just find that because Warlocks get so much in those first two levels, I've very rarely found it where it's best to stick with it, except in cases where players were just looking for simplicity. So simplicity does not necessarily equal power level. So I do find that to be a a weakness of the Warlocks power progression. Yeah, uh, I have also noticed this, uh, not just because I played a Sorlock in Eld, but Rowan herself, you know, was a level 15 Warlock when I started with her uh, because we were playing. Actually, I was joining a late game levels one to 20 uh, campaign and they were just like, you know, we're level 15. You can make whatever you want. And uh, these are the classes that people are already playing. And I was like, I don't see Warlock on that list. Uh, So so I wanted to play, you know, a level 15 straight class Warlock, see how it felt. And it didn't feel bad per se. Like I wouldn't say it was a bad class. It was quite enjoyable. Again, I, you know, the role play options. Um, But you know, looking back on the build that I had there, it just there are ways to make it more effective, uh, more powerful, or even just more fulfilling in the role that Warlock plays usually, which is usually range stuff. Now, I was playing a Hexblade build, so melee was kind of my thing. But again, you know, Eldritch Blast can kind of just be used by any Warlock and is good on any Warlock. So there's no reason to use Eldritch Blast instead of my instead of my Hexblade uh, most of the time. And, and that's actually the kind of interesting thing about Hexblade is that despite the name, like John often likes to point out that the names of things don't always mean what the, <laughs> what the abilities are. Um, despite the name, playing a Hexblade Warlock without a blade... <laughs> is actually kind of a good thing to do because the Eldritch Blast is just that strong. And so, you know, I just wanted to point that out, that it is so front-loaded. Like like I said, I went to level 15. I probably should have made it level 11 at the highest. Even then, could have probably just done something else. Games are fun to play. Whether it's chess, Mario Kart, or Dungeons & Dragons, we've all sat down to play a game with our friends before. But what is it that keeps us coming back to our favorites? How do developers craft the experiences that keep us this engaged? I'm Sully, host of the podcast Fun But Why. Join us as we talk to game industry professionals and break down the levels, mechanics, and design of their favorite gaming experiences. Fun But Why releases new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. To move on to some subclass suggestions, 
I would say if you are a brand new player, especially if you're playing with other brand new players, I still find that one of the best Warlock subclasses is Fiend right out of the player's handbook, right out of the SRD. Uh, It's got this feature where if you reduce a creature's hit points to zero, you get temporary hit points. It has a decent expanded spell list, including Fireball. And I think that Hurl Through Hell is one of the better 14th level subclass capstones you can get out of Warlock. So Fiend, I think, really plays up kind of the deal with the devil storyline that a lot of Warlock players imagine. And I think that its mechanics are solid. Now, of course, if you want something that's a little more complex, a little more interesting, a little more powerful, we've been talking about Hexblade totally blows every other subclass out of the water. A lot of it just being the proficiency in medium armor shields and martial weapons. Like that alone allows for equipment options that make the Warlock much, much more survivable. Hexblade's Curse, super good feature, especially at first level. And it's just a bonus action to activate. Hexblade is the one I could see myself taking above like second level. If I were to, but even then I tried it once and it was so much more fun to, for me anyway, to multi-class it into Sorcerer. I do also like making sure that we point out any trap subclasses, ones that are very obviously not as powerful. The nice thing is, at least in terms of the player's handbook, Fiend is much more powerful than Archfey and Great Old One, but not so much more so that I would not recommend playing the other two. The only Warlock subclass that I kind of like curl my nose up at is uh, the Undying from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. The theme of the subclass is like maybe you have a Lich or some kind of undead as your patron. And in Von Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, they released uh, a subclass called the Undead, which fit the theme so much better. The mechanics were more powerful. It was just a much more relevant option. The Undying is just, it's not going to serve you in the way that you probably imagine the character cinematically operating. I was just going to say also that um, the Archfey uh, of the three in the PHB, the Archfey is probably, in my opinion, the, the weakest uh, of them, mostly because uh, it mostly deals with, uh, unfortunately, D&D kind of has this, this uh, you know, tendency to associate the Fae with being charmed or frightened or other things like that. Uh, and, and it's not like lore wise, that's a problem, but mechanically it is kind of problematic because the likelihood of being able to get something to be charmed or frightened uh, as a, as like a monster from the monster manual is just, it's just very small because unless they're humanoid esque, right. Then it, it just doesn't quite work out like you'd like it to, because a lot of them are immune to it or they'll have like fairly good wisdom or something like that. And so wisdom saves are just not a great option. Usually it's like intellect or charisma. Those are like the rarest uh, saving throws to, to actually, you know, be successful on other creatures. And, and I think personally, I think that if, uh, if charisma was the thing that was being used for these frightened or charmed saving throws, cause it just tells you, it tells you in the ability, you know, they make a wisdom saving throw. They make another wisdom saving throw. Like the, if it was charisma or, or something like that, I think it actually might be more, reliable and actually even more compelling almost but the problem is that the way DD works right now with its mechanics it just doesn't it's not reliable at all and you know even the great old one has ones that are like a little bit more impressive like psychic damage and and things like that i just think it's i just think it just disappoints and that's why i think warlock is is you know, much more heavily associated with role play rather than the actual mechanics of it, because it's very simple and uh, not as, you know, impressive compared to many other other uh, many other class features or subclass features. I will say to defend the Archfey, uh, I really like its expanded spell list. 
It has some of my favorite spells in the game. So as a warlock, if you can cast fairy fire and then have advantage on everything you're shooting at, I think that's pretty cool. At higher levels, it also gives you dominate beast and greater invisibility. Both of those spells are pretty baller. So I do agree about the charm frightened thing. I think that there's a lot of concepts that are really cool in D&D rules. And unfortunately, a lot of monsters have either immunity or are highly resistant to some of the coolest features like charmed, frightened, uh, poison damage. <laughs> so and that can uh, that can really dampen a player's excitement who really envisions a character that is frightening or is charming, because if nine times out of ten you try to charm something and it's oop, it's just immune to charm it's a bummer. Like it's not fun to play. So the last part, which I think will also take a lot of our time, uh, because one of the things, the reason it's called practical possibilities is because I think it's helpful that D and D organizes a lot of its character ideas through archetypes. Also, I found a fair number of players and DMS get stuck thinking in terms of archetypes rather than seeing the very practical possibilities that a class or a set of spells or something can offer. So for the first thing I want to say, I love otherworldly patrons so much. I think that they should be available to everyone. So it's you and I have had some conversations outside of recordings and stuff about this that I actually think it's a little bit of a shame that warlocks are the otherworldly patron class. I think that there are some cool warlock ideas, like just having kind of like a hex master or kind of like a witch character that doesn't necessarily have an otherworldly patron, kind of like cleric. I like philosophy clerics, not necessarily the clerics that their power from a god clerics. And it's not that I don't like otherworldly patrons. I just think it would be interesting for, say, I don't know, a bard. A bard song comes from music that they hear in their ear from dreams given to them by an otherworldly patron. I think that if you allow otherworldly patrons to bestow gifts to the other classes, I think there are some interesting story concepts that can come out of that. Also, I don't get why the only way you can learn Eldritch Blast is through a patron, but every patron can give it to you. So, I mean, at this point, we have Archphase, Fiends, Celestials, Undead. (laughs) Pretty soon, there's probably going to be a Construct patron that'll also give you Eldritch Blast, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they everybody gets everybody can give you Eldritch Blast, but they're so unrelated as entities. There's no there's no red thread. Like, sure, they're all otherworldly patrons, but that's not really a red thread that ties them together. That's just a, a category, right? You know, and that's why I think it's interesting when some people start saying like uh, that patrons can be patrons for multiple warlocks and that's how they're gaining power. They're not actually giving power away. They're gaining power. They're gaining influence to elevate them to the status of a god or something like that. And and I've seen I've seen like a comic, honestly, that says like it, it was like this otherworldly patron, like watching their warlock cast their spell and instead of eldritch blast it was uh guiding bolt and it's like i did it i made it to godhood like you know i'm so proud of them like that kind of thing it was just kind of funny how that uh, how that kind of like mechanic uh of of all of these guys having eldritch blast and stuff kind of implies a certain lore about the world that i don't even know if it's ever really addressed like directly well, and that's something that, of course, frustrates me. If there's that inconsistency or that irrationality, it bugs me. Uh, that being said, my first edition of D&D was fourth edition. I did not play it very long, but there were some interesting ideas in fourth edition. Fourth edition warlocks still had a pact. They still had a patron. But what tended to separate them from wizards was that wizards would cast magic that was mainstream warlock magic was seen as dangerous and esoteric and i thought that distinction just looking at the two spell lists next to each other was 
much more intriguing that, you know, you don't want to be a warlock because Eldritch Blast is a dangerous spell. It's an esoteric spell. So a cele- I could now see a celestial saying, you know, I could make you a warlock instead of a cleric. This magic is going to be a little more dangerous, or maybe there's some storytelling consequences to the fact that you're using Eldritch Blasts instead of Sacred Flames and Guiding Bolts. Yeah, like making it more volatile in the because of the source or the t- rather not even the source, but the type of magic you get. I actually there was a D&D stream that I used to watch uh, from Achievement Hunter actually over on Rooster Teeth and they played D&D. And that was one of my first experiences with D&D, by the way. And one of the characters was a warlock. And one of the things about them being a warlock was that they they had they had to cast Eldritch Blast. They had to cast their warlock spells and abilities or else they would like explode, you know, <laughs> like that. I mean, you know, you don't have to go that extreme, but like uh, they would like explode or they'd go mad or something like that. Like whatever it was, if they didn't use their power because of the volatility of it, it put their life at risk. So that's, I, I think that's awesome. You know, that is, that is a great give and take of, uh, you know, getting these powers, but at what cost, you know, that's like the whole deal with the devil thing, uh, that, that they're doing in, in the fiend here, or rather that they should be doing, you know, it, that's, and, and I think that's, I think that's part of the problem. And I'm not sure if it's really a thing that's just warlock specific, but also like just when you build any character in general, uh, the risk and reward, you know, the things that you give up in order to get other things, it's just, uh, it's not as present in D&D, uh, in fifth edition rather. And yeah, I, I think it, maybe it should be. As we're talking about it, to me, that makes sense. Like, I actually would love to see Warlock being more of the blood magic class where like you can maybe take backlash damage or sacrifice some other resource to get more power in the moment. And I think that would balance out Eldridge Blast with Sorcerer because let's say, I don't know, there's a 10% chance when you cast Eldridge Blast, you take damage from it. Well, yeah, now you can go into Sorcerer and deal more, like get more blasts, but you also have a higher chance of blowing yourself up in the process. That That's an intriguing concept that I think is worth exploring. Now, the other thing I put down, uh, this is mostly, you know, you might make your DM twitchy if you ask them to do this. It's something I found helpful. Like we said, one of the weaknesses of Warlock is its spell economy. And I had a player... They didn't ask me this. It was more an observation. They said, it's kind of a bummer. I only get two spells per fight while like all these other characters get six or seven of them. And so what I told them was, hey, instead of packed magic, just treat it like any other spell caster. So you get a full spell slot progression. It's normal. Ignore Mystic Arcanum. Ignore packed magic. Spell slots recover on a long rest like always. The spells known is the same as any other warlock. It's just now you have four first level spell slots and three second level spell slots, yada, yada. That player's experience and from my rulings has been largely positive. It seemed to have kind of fixed any issue that they had playing a straight class warlock. And I think that it also started to let us see some of the other warlock spells that normally don't get cast because you only have two spell slots most of the time. So you don't want to waste them on anything. Now this player is more willing to try out some of those weirder warlock spells that normally don't get picked. Of course, that's my preference. Also my recommendation, like especially if you're DMing for a player that's been around the block a few times and making this kind of substitution isn't really going to overly confuse them or worry them or anything. I found it's worked really well for me, but earlier today, the day of this recording, Treant Monk uploaded a video about getting rid of short rests and the implications that that would have on the system, some changes that might work for the classes. Of course, Warlock was one he spent some time on because the Warlock's shtick is that a lot of its features and its spells recharge on short rests. So one of the things he said was he liked that Warlock 
didn't just use spell casting and that his preference, which I thought was interesting because this is again coming back to those invocations, is to give the warlock more invocations and take away their spell slots. So you get more invocations with things like uh, beast speech or uh, the one that was silent image at will. And there's another one that's like you can do Bane once or something. So the idea being that, yeah, some of these spells may not be as strong, but unlike other spell casters, you can cast them at will without spell slots, without material components. And that's the warlock kind of shortcutting the usual resource drain that spell slots would call for. And I thought that was a really interesting thought experiment. Again, it's not one I necessarily agree with. Probably if you did this, you would make Eldritch Blast a class feature rather than a spell. And I don't know. I just thought it was worth considering because it's already leaning into something that's established and you're used to for the class. Again, I think I would rather have my warlocks be spellcasters, but I, I really want, was curious about your opinion of that completely alternate take. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to, I, I will talk about that, but I, I did want to say I can see why you would want, you know, warlocks to be spellcasters because they're basically the curse class, right? The curse class of, P, uh, of, of D&D. And we just don't have that kind of thing uh, in any of the, of the other classes. So I, I can definitely see why, I can see the appeal of both of these. So with having more invocations, it would be a good idea in that you can... Uh, then customize your warlock and make them feel powerful even without spell casting uh, and make just just make the eldritch invocations the pack magic as a whole. I think that would be a good idea. Um, I think both your solution and his solution work well. I think the downside, again, the downside to to your solution, I think is just it then you would just be another you know sorcerer with Eldritch blast. Um, the downside with more invocations is that it's more invocations. <laughs> it's a lot okay like there's already a lot of invocations in here and yeah they they are divided by level but all those ones that you can not all of them but a lot of the ones that you can cast a spell for free um are are you know don't require any any level prerequisite or any other feature prerequisite um you know like uh armor of shadows you get mage armor beast speech you get speak with animals uh misty visions silent image you know, all disguised self with the mask of many faces, which like not all of these are first level uh, spells, you know? So we have to consider that it would just, you know, it, it's if we're just going to turn the Warlock spell list into Eldritch Invocations, you would have pages, pages here of, of more and more spells like that uh, and sure, be great in terms of like the theoretical, but just that it, it just feels like it would bog down a lot. And and like just considering how many invocations you get to start or not to start, but to, how many invocations you get already that you might not even use, you know, the it, it's just it's just another way to do spells. So here's my question. Why do you like Mystic Arcana more than having sixth through ninth level spell slots? What I really like about the Mystic Arcanum, even though it's not as strong as the full casters, you know, two sixth level, two seventh level, and one eighth and ninth level spell slots, is that I think the the story that's implied about the Mystic Arcanum, not one that's explicitly said, but it is implicit that Mystic Arcanum, because of the nature of Path packed magic because of your relationship with your patron then the mystic arcanum kind of is the manifestation the ultimate manifestation of what that looks like and i think because it's not really addressed like that as as uh clearly uh a lot of people kind of gloss over that idea that you know once per day you can manifest the power that you've been building up over time through this relationship with your patron uh into this one you know amazing great spell uh that that is just what you need and it's like you know everybody's taking the most powerful spells at that level too uh you know foresight and things like that and and i think you know that way it's very it's very interesting 
because what it says, you know, if you look at it that way, can be very exciting because it fulfills a certain narrative uh, that is like the culmination of the narrative you've been weaving up to this point. So sorcerers, you know, their bloodline, as they continue to cast magic, their bloodline is continuing to give them more and more powerful magic as they expand in their spell casting abilities. But the warlock is, is gaining that magic through like bargaining or other things like that. And you can see in um, the way they flavor it right now is that at 11th level, your patron bestows upon you a magical secret called an arcanum. And you can choose one sixth level spell from the warlock spell list as this arcanum or something. So what I would do, actually, what I would do is to buff this, to make it more powerful and actually more rewarding to continue to go full class into warlock is actually, I would just say from any caster spell list and you can maybe cast wish at that point which yeah. a lot of casters want to do almost all casters are excited to cast wish that first time even with all the risks that come with it and and i think by manifesting that as a mystic arcanum it can be much more enticing actually i want to i want to get your opinion because as you've been saying it i actually you might have sold me on mystic arcanum but instead of it being the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, it's an expanded spell option for sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth that you just get. So like Genie Warlock, I know Wish is part of that class's thing. Like once you hit 17th level Genie Warlock, Wish does become available to you. So in a similar way, if you're, say, a ninth level Great Old One Warlock, like you get to pick a ninth level spell like a regular caster, but you also get Psychic Scream because nothing is more Cthulian, Lovecraftian than Psychic Scream. If you're a Celestial Warlock, you're a 17th level Mystic Arcanum, you just get Mass Heal. It's just part of the package of being a Celestial Warlock. So I really like that idea of almost getting like a bonus thing from your patron along that same line that's something sorcerers don't get sorcerers their biggest weakness is their spells known and so even as a sorcerer say i i can prepare like two sixth level spells known even if i only have one sixth level spell slot the difference with warlock is you get a custom high level spell at each of those high level spell levels based on what your relationship with your patron looks like so i actually i really like that um and i think it gives the warlock more of a spell thing than their typical capstone so it's already a little like if you think of hurl through hell from fiend that's a little bit like what you just described the mystic arcanum to be like that's a really specific class feature though that's less versatile i think than some of the spell casting that you would get. I think I think it just needs a little bit more. But if I was allowed to do that design, you probably just sold me on it. Yeah. Yeah. See, like, you know, this just shows how passionate I am about Warlock, you know, just like, like it can work. I promise it can work. You just give it a chance. Like, <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. No, that that is a great solution. And I think I might actually uh, do that for my custom world as well and say, you know, as a warlock, I'll probably do, you know, if I if I ever make this into a full on custom setting that I want to sell or something, I'll probably have to come up with something unique for every class so that it's not just the warlocks. Um, but if, if I were to do that, then yeah, for sure, you know, just whatever great spell fits, you know, doesn't matter what list it's from, whatever great spell it is, uh, you know, that's the one you get. That's your Mystic Arcanum. Uh, and that actually uh, can prevent a lot of choice paralysis as well. Because, you know, especially newer players, they don't know what these high level spells do. Uh, you, listener, to listening to this uh, as a new player, you might not even know what Psychic Scream does. It probably just sounds like Danny Phantom's ghost whale, right? Like to, to your mind. So, you know, there's more to it than that. So I think that that could be a really good idea. You know, it, it's, a, it's a class that is in the interest of simplicity, granting you 
a single good spell, like high tier spell that you don't even have to worry about figuring out what it's going to be because you're just going to get it. Do you have any final thoughts on this one? Um, Just to round it off and summarize how I feel about this class, role-playing is at the forefront of my mind when I pick this class. I am excited to role-play with my otherworldly patron, with the DM, see how the other characters react to this uh, role-play, and see what happens in not only the storytelling, but also the mechanical changes of the game Uh, as I'm expanding this relationship with that patron. Because even if something's not in the rules, your relationship with the patron can have a direct impact on the game state. Like I did with um, Eld and his reincarnation moment. He lost his physical heart. How the heck is he still alive, right? That's that's a very exciting uh, concept that can have different connotations that you might not be expecting or disadvantages or advantages, things like that. Um, if in terms of choosing which subclass to, to pick in terms of what otherworldly patron you should pick, the fiend is a great start. Hexblade is the best one. Nobody's ever going to argue that. Um, and with the amount of Eldritch invocations you get, no matter how you play your warlock, it's probably going to be a good time. Uh, as long as you tell your DM what invocations you took, uh, because then if it's one of those ones like uh, Eyes of the Runekeeper, they can they can build stuff around that. They can say give you more opportunities. Like, oh, this is only this this script is in in Abyssal. Nobody reads Abyssal in your party. Ah, but our warlock has Eyes of the Runekeeper. You know, and that could be a critical thing in your campaign. Um, so. You know, I think if you're going to play a blaster as a beginner, Warlock is great, presents great role-playing opportunities, great damage-dealing opportunities, and really makes you feel like you're in an RPG sometimes with just how much you can customize it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Dragonmind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, Shake It Up, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now! Did you know that there are other tabletop games than Dungeons & Dragons? Well, my name is Gavin, and I'm the host of Playing Out of Character, an actual play podcast that showcases different indie game systems. We play all these indie tabletops using goofs and spooks to tell our stories. Arc 1 features an improvisational take on Urban Shadows. Next up is Shadows of the Demon Lord. If that piques your interest, look for Playing Out of Character, a Darkmoor podcast show on your favorite podcatcher.